0: And executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. When we started this series back in 2017, we welcomed nearly every general manager throughout the game. The interviews began as a featured part of the MLB Newsmakers podcast feed. There was so much interest in the interviews, we ended up launching the Executive Access Podcast on its own feed in the spring of 2018. Over the past few weeks, we've released a series of throwback episodes from that first season in 2017, featuring Nationals GM Mike Rizzo, Blue Jays President and CEO Mark Shapiro, Yankees GM Brian Cashman, and many more. This week, we present three conversations with current NL West executives, Giants President of Baseball Operations Farhan Zaidi, Padres General Manager A.J. Preller, and Rockies General Manager Jeff Breidich. We discuss their beginnings in baseball, some of the mentors that taught them the business, and much more. As we wait for baseball to return, I hope you enjoy these 2017 conversations with Farhan Zaidi, A.J. Preller, and Jeff Breidich. Farhan, how'd you land your first job in baseball?
1: Uh, I might take up your whole tape on there explaining that, (laughs) but... um, Cliff Notes version, (laughs) Yeah, I was in grad school at Cal uh, in an economics PhD program and, um, uh, you know, was always interested in in, in baseball, Um, happened to come come across the... um, you know uh uh famous or infamous moneyball book uh as you'd have it and uh uh you know that really struck a chord with me as uh you know i mean plenty of stories in there about people with unusual paths into baseball people that didn't necessarily play professionally um people that brought different skill sets to the table so uh that kind of book really was my inspiration i started sending around my resume um and really you know got a little bit more active looking for a job in baseball and uh you know despite what i thought was casting a a wide net wound up being pretty serendipitous uh that i just happened to chance one day across a listing for a baseball operations assistant with the a's um and uh, didn't know anybody over there uh, had no experience with the organization just submitted my resume and crossed my fingers and a few days later heard from david Forrest and a week after that I was in Billy Bean's office for an interview, so uh, it was a very, very lucky set of circumstances, and I won't bore you with all the details, but yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty much it.
0: Now given that Moneyball sort of sparked your interest in this, how surreal was it to be sitting
1: in Billy Bean's office? Very surreal. Um, I, you know, I still, I recall a lot, you know, walking into his office and kind of seeing him sitting there having read this whole book about you know him and how influential he'd be in baseball. I also like remember the moment he stood up from behind his desk and he's a big guy. I don't think people fully appreciate that. You know, in my, you know, background hadn't been around a lot of professional athletes. And so I still remember that feeling of thinking like, man, this guy is huge. (laughs) Most people think he looks like Brad Pitt. Right. Right. There's there's that too. I mean, I, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, say and have him here that I was like struck by his handsomeness, like that. but uh, definitely just the surrealness of being in his office and uh, and actually wound up being a, a great interview and and we hit off really well. But uh, yeah, surreal is exactly the right word for it.
0: You'd held a few different jobs before landing with the A's, including a position in the fantasy sports division of the That's Sporting right. News. Did you ever dream when you were working in fantasy sports that you'd have a chance to actually run your own baseball team?
1: Uh, No. uh, You know, it was an aspiration, but, um, you know, being a numbers guy, if you asked me to handicap the odds, I wouldn't have gotten too carried away with the chances. Um, But, uh, you know, I'd worked at a management consulting firm, and this fantasy sports company, which I had a great time at, that was really the closest access that i could get to working in sports and so uh, i did that for a year and i wound up going to grad school after that just because the path to a team seemed a little too difficult and distant you once said
0: quote it always seemed to me that to work at a baseball front office you had to have played the game at a high level or been a scout or a coach it didn't seem like a career you could access from a business background right. as you look at the landscape now of gms i believe jerry depoto is the only one of the 30 general managers who actually played major league baseball why do you think more former players haven't gone the route of front office career after their playing days
1: um i think some of it is just that the job of general manager has changed i mean baseball's become such big business now that i mean some of the skill sets you get from other careers and professions have you know brought a benefit i mean uh, what, what what's very clear is that people that play the game at the highest level are still very influential in the decision-making infrastructure of a lot of front offices. They may be special assistants or vice presidents of you know, player personnel, uh, different kind of titles. But the GM title now comes with you know a lot of administrative and management responsibility. And, and maybe that's why you've seen a little bit of a trend with that particular title towards people with less conventional baseball backgrounds. You
0: mentioned that you were a big baseball fan ever since you were a kid. You were born in Canada, raised mostly in the Philippines. How did you first become a huge baseball fan?
1: Uh, it's funny. My, so, my parents didn't know anything about baseball. So, they weren't, um, you know, they didn't put a baseball head bat in my hand when I was three years old or right. anything like that. No story like that. It was actually a family friend of ours um, who uh, had happened to have gotten their kids involved in Little League baseball and um you know one day my mom was talking to her and she was like hey we should bring your kids too so that was kind of how i first started playing and then once you start playing you catch the bug and you know start uh following it to whatever degree you can whenever it's on TV, you know, coming to the U.S. for summer vacations and buying up baseball cards and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's really how the fandom started. But, yeah, certainly wasn't really surrounded by it sort of family or friend-wise growing up.
0: Was it Was it hard to follow it in the Philippines? Was yeah. There?
1: No, I, it really was. You know, it was a big you know, growing...
0: You MLB.tv at that Yeah,
1: that, exactly. Right? Some of that internet access stuff hadn't quite crept up, but uh, I would... Uh, You know, it was a big deal for me to be able to buy the USA Today. I mean, it was the international edition, which didn't have quite as much baseball coverage as uh, uh, the domestic edition. But, you know, I would save up my allowance and once a week, uh, you know, go out and, and, and buy the USA Today. And I would, you know, try to get it on... You know, Monday, because because the Monday paper would have both the Saturday and Sunday box scores, or you know, some days I would get the Tuesday or Wednesday versions, which had the NL and AL. Yeah, anybody so. who played rotisserie baseball. Exactly, games, you know exactly. That. So yeah, I, I really had to strategize about which days to buy the USA Today with my allowance, and you know, so that that was the kind of way you know. In one year, uh, I think it was like the, in 1985, I was like nine years old. I bought the uh, baseball encyclopedia for the first time. And that poor encyclopedia had to last me about three or four years. So, uh, you know, my, my, my stat database was about two or three years behind before I finally got another one. But, yeah, had to follow it in those ways that seem very antiquated now. When you think about now how people can get access on
0: their phones at their fingertips every day, it's amazing to think that you had to wait until Wednesdays to get the
1: National League stats, right? <laughs> I mean,
0: that's, People think that's a really foreign concept, but that, we really
1: did that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's funny. It probably, um, you know... It comes up in front offices a lot now. All of your stat databases are updated in real time. And there was probably some benefit to having databases that only updated once a week or every two weeks because it kept you from going crazy over these small sample sizes. Right. You know? So it was a little bit of a technological safeguard against overreacting to things. But uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm jealous of kids growing up now and the access they get. Billy once famously
0: said of you, quote, I'm more worried about losing him to Apple or Google than I am to another team. Have you ever thought about
1: taking your talents to another industry? Um, well, uh, I, you know, I, I do have, uh, you know, different interests. I mean, I, like I said, was very fortunate to wind up in this job. But, uh, you know, if um, the A's had decided to go in a different direction or if I hadn't come across that job posting, you know, I'd probably be in economics academia somewhere. And I really enjoyed that. So. Um, yeah, you know, I love this job. I'm very committed to, you know, this organization, what we're trying to do here. Um, but, um, you know, uh, I guess I would say on the one hand, I have a, I have other interests. On the other hand, it would be really hard to ever walk away from baseball. So I guess, it, it, you know, that that's, that's a question I've thought about, but I don't have a good answer to. You worked for Billy for a long time. What did you take away most from your years with him? Um... You know, I, I, I think one of the easiest uh, traps to fall into or something that can really inhibit your judgment in this kind of role is just the fear of making mistakes, fear of making a trade that you get burned on, um, fear of signing a free agent that doesn't work out, and, and it can really lead to paralysis. And I think if you really look deep inside the soul of any GM, they'll acknowledge there's a lot of that uh, That affects and maybe even impairs their decision making. Um, and so that, uh, you know, is, I guess, what I was able to observe with Billy and, and try to apply and practice wherever I can, which is to not avoid making decisions because you're worried about them making you look bad, to always operate in the best interests of the organization. And, you know, as a corollary to that, you know, when we'd be making a trade, you know, he'd always say, focus at least as much as what you're getting as what you're giving up. I mean, Sometimes in our front offices, there's so much of a conversation on how good do we think this prospect we're giving up could be rather than saying we're getting this guy that can really help us get over the hump. So I think that mentality, um, because of the psychology that goes into making decisions in such a public forum, uh, is really important to nail down, and I think he does that as well as anyone in the game.
0: You pushed hard for the A's to sign
1: Jonas Cespedes.
0: What did you like most about his game before he got to the majors? Uh, you know, besides the fact that he hit the ball 1,000 feet. Exactly. <laughs> I, you
1: know, he was a, you know, a really exciting blend of tools and performance. I mean, I think that's the gold standard, and there's a lot of talk about sabermetrics versus scouting. And so when so we'll you, get to that. Right. I, I guess when you have... Um, you know, an evaluation where things line up as they did in this case, uh, you get really excited. And so our scouts were really effusive about him. We did a lot of uh, analytical work on his track record in Cuba. We broke down our scouting reports and really tried to parse out, um, you know, how our tool grades compared to major league players. Um, and so yeah, everything everything lined up. And again, you know, in a market like Oakland so much of the issue is just access to talent and who will come and play there Uh, and, you know, so I guess it was a combination of tools, performance, and a willingness to sign (laughs) on (laughs) us. We've seen players come from all over Latin
0: America and a lot of different Asian countries at this point. How much untapped baseball talent do you think there is still out there around the world?
1: It's a really good question. I mean, I uh, you know, despite my background, this might come as a bit of a surprise, but have been a little bit bearish on baseball globalization just because uh, I think it's really hard to expand into countries where other sports are clearly ahead. And You know, when you're the second or third or fourth sport in a country, particularly in a smaller country, you're just not gonna get the public's attention. You're not going to get the best athletes to be playing that sport. And so historically, I mean, in general I've been a little bearish on that. Now you know, with the World Baseball Classic this spring and seeing, you know, how, you know, it really took international baseball to another level that we haven't seen before, you know, I think I have to rethink my stance because uh, it created a lot of excitement. um, And, uh, you know, and every time you get a story like Team Israel, which, you know, might not be, you know, a country you associate with baseball, but uh, when when a team like that can capture its country's, you know, imagination and and do some exciting things, then you've opened up a whole new market. So uh, I think I'm, I'm more bullish on it now than I've been in the past.
0: That was Giants president of baseball operations, Farhan Zaidi, who was the GM of the Los Angeles Dodgers when we spoke back in 2017. Now, here's Padres general manager, AJ Preller.
2: AJ, how'd you land your first job in baseball? Uh, I mean, actually, I started with an internship with the Philadelphia Phillies while I was still at college. And, you know, I did uh, did the internship and, and then went back to school for my senior year at Cornell, and that led to, a, uh, to an opportunity with the Arizona Fall League, working in baseball operations with Frank Robinson and Steve Cobb. And uh, that was probably my first taste of, of baseball operations. You went on to work in the commissioner's office after that.
0: Uh, For several years, some people I've spoken to who also worked in the commissioner's office said there was no better training ground for learning the game and how the business works. Uh, Did you think that there was a chance you'd have a
2: career working at MLB for a career, or did you always want to get involved on the club side? I think honestly at that point in time, I think it was more just about any experience in baseball it was, you know, it was basically a, you know, a dream experience and a dream job. And I think, you know, for myself, I was from New York, and I think an opportunity to go back to New York, live there, uh, work in, you know, like, you know, work for Frank Robinson, a baseball hall of famer. Um, you know, he was a phenomenal boss. He a, you know, became a great friend It definitely, you know, a, a Big time teacher for me. Um, learned a ton from him, and then you know at the time too, Sandy Alderson was there, Paul Beeston was there, Rob Manfred was there, Frank Coonley was there, and the list goes on and on. Um, you know Brian Small, different guys that I that you know he had an opportunity to start to realize, you know all the different areas of baseball operations that you know the game behind the game and some some things there and learn from some really great people. So it was a it was a pretty tremendous you know improving ground, training ground, uh, and definitely a learning experience. And really at that time I was I was really just focused and just enjoying just every day going to work there and. You know, I you know, and uh, you know whether it led to opportunities or not. I was really appreciative of the opportunity to be there. You and John Daniels were fraternity brothers, were roommates at Cornell. Did you guys ever imagine back then you'd both be general managers in the majors, competing against each other? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think. You know, I, honestly, I, I think you know the. Uh, and everything, you could aspire to be a general manager, you know, there's only 30 of those jobs in the game. So I think it was really, you know, from my standpoint, I, I was clear from the beginning I wanted to, you know, see if you, know, see if you could stay involved in the game and, and work in baseball. That was gonna be the path that I was gonna try to do, you know, while I was at college or, um, you know, you know, leaving college. For JD, he went out into the business world first. And, you know, when I was doing my experience at the Fall League and then I made baseball, uh, I don't think he was all that happy working in the business world. And, you know, we were constantly obviously staying in touch and I think spending more time talking about baseball anything else going on and just encouraging John that you know at that point in time there's opportunity and you know ultimately you know if you have a you have a dream and you have a goal you know you know go for it see what happens that led to a you know a situation for him an opportunity with the Colorado Rockies and obviously he took that and ran with it and led to a lot of success for himself. Right now you look around the league and front offices are loaded with Ivy Leaguers
0: uh, various positions aside from the obvious education that you all received do you think there's a reason
2: that front offices have skewed that way in recent years? Yeah, no. I mean, I I think you know. I I really do. Honestly, think think, um, you know, good people come from all different backgrounds. So I think you know, from from my standpoint, when we're looking to hire and we're looking to you know get people that are you know that 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 potentially we think are going to be impactful employees for the Padres. um, You know, there's all different all different areas of you know all different ways you know things you look at in terms of background and maybe. You know, maybe education, may maybe you know, in terms of you know the different experiences that people have from whatever school they went to. But honestly, it's it's playing background. It's just general feel. It's business background. It's you know, ability to read people. There's a lot that go into it. You know, um, you know. I think obviously right now you look out and there's there's people that have come from really successful schools, but. You know, ultimately, I think there's a lot of good baseball people that have come from all different backgrounds, and, you know, I, and I think uh, you know, from our standpoint, we try to be diverse in what we're trying to do, you know, in terms of in bringing people with different experiences here to the Padres. You, uh, you mentioned you're from New York, Long
0: Island, I believe. Uh, you've been described as having a quote East Coast intensity. How, how have
2: you adapted to life in laid-back San Diego? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, mean, I think like ultimately, San Diego a beautiful city, and that's uh, I think it's it's not too hard for anybody to get used to living in San Diego. It's uh, you know honestly, I think it's it's as as nice any as city. In the country, and you know, it's passionate baseball fans. Honestly, just in Southern California, I think in SoCal, you know, just with with youth baseball, amateur baseball, and then obviously, you know, all the professional teams that are there. You know, the big league baseball that's there. You know, I think it's it's fans that are thirsty for you know to see good baseball, and they love the game. So that part's been an easy transition when you have a lot of people there that love the game of baseball, and then obviously, you know, the the you know the climate and the sunny days and you know the beautiful you know the beautiful beaches, all that stuff. It's made pretty easy to transition to San Diego. How do you deal with the I mean, it most dip into the low 60s sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah so it's, 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 it was a rough transition, 75 and sunny dead. You, so. you miss seasons? Uh, nope. No. Nope. <laughs> not at all. No. no. no you're, you're, enough, you're good not seeing snow. Yeah, I, I did, did that imagine. for enough years, exactly. Uh,
0: at this point, every team in baseball has an analytics department. It's no longer something that only a few teams are taking advantage of. Um, one GM told me that he's seen scouts beginning to even take to analytics because they're backing up things that they were seeing on the field. Do you think it was important for the whole idea that some teams are scouting teams, some teams are analytic teams, to go away now that all 30 teams are are utilizing every... Piece of information
2: at their advantage? Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of times, you know, labels too, you don't, you don't really know. I think, you know, from my standpoint, I've always made a point, that unless you work with somebody, you work for somebody, or you're actually, in, you know, intricately involved in what goes on, um, it's really hard to say. I think, you know, a lot of times people, it's easy, it's an easy narrative for somebody to say that hey, this is a, you know, quote unquote scouting organization or an analytics organization. I think, you know, there's a lot that go into a lot, into any of these decisions on the baseball side. And I think, you know, we try to be well rounded. We try to, you know, use all the information that we have. We definitely are, you know, believe in people and want people that can make good calls and good decisions for us, and ultimately I think that's what leads to the best possible decisions, but yeah, ultimately any, any label anywhere, you know, I, I don't put a lot of stock in usually. It seemed at the beginning of the analytics revolution, it was small market teams really trying to utilize them to,
0: to catch up and find some advantages to, to, to catch the teams that had a lot more financial resources, uh, now that everybody's using them, do you think teams are out there looking for the next big thing? the next big wave of competitive advantage that they can, they can try to, to use?
2: Yeah, I, I think I think it's, you know, I think definitely, I think every, you know, each club, it's it's, it's competition, it's Major League Baseball, and there's 30 teams, and, and usually a team will, you know, will find some, some advantage, whether it's on the on, on the analytics side or, you know, or elsewhere, and, you know, that, that window closes pretty quickly, so you want to try to take advantage of it. If you think you have found something or something that's going to, you know, give you a competitive advantage, because pretty quickly it's a copycat industry and other teams are going to, you know, are, are going to try to do the same. So, um um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, th- I think, again, it's, it's, you know, it's big, you know, big business and sports, so that that always leads to a competitive environment where people are always trying to find advantages that can lead your organization to be successful. Now
0: that the Chargers have moved up the road to Los Angeles, uh, you guys are really the only show in town in terms of big league sports. It's been more than a decade since the Padres were in the postseason. How important is it to get
2: this team back to that level? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a huge responsibility that I think we all feel in the organization. I think, honestly, like, you know, regardless of the Padres being of the, the Chargers, you know, being in San Diego or not, you know, I think, you know, it's a, you know, it's a a great fan base and I think, you know, you, you, you do this job, you know, to give your fans an opportunity to see a team that year in, year out can contend and compete and go to play October baseball. Because, I mean, I think, you know, you see you see every single year. That's the best feeling. I know I had a chance to do it when we were in Texas and we were able, you know, to go to the playoffs, go back-to-back World Series in the playoffs, you know, a number of years in a row. And I think, you know, when you get there and you see it, it's, you know, it's what it's all about. So I think from our standpoint, you know, definitely with the Chargers leaving, if you feel that sense of response, we felt it anyway, honestly. And I think, you know, to put together a product that, you know, that your fans are proud of, that they're engaged, you know, with with watching the players that are on the field, they're excited to go see. That's our goal every single day in baseball operations.
0: John Daniels once referred to you as, quote, a tremendous talent evaluator. It's not something you can learn in school. How did you develop your your ability to evaluate baseball talent?
2: Yeah, I think it, it just in general, like you know, in, in general, like any any evaluator, I think it really comes down to two things. It comes down, to, you know, I think there's certain a certain level of feel that you have to have, feel for people, feel for ability, um, you know, and then it comes down to work ethic too. I mean, I think if you if you you know you have guys that are, you know, that are that that are you know um, that you know that merge those two areas together in terms of you know just feel for looking at people and reading people and players, and then you know the, the thirst to to want to wanna go see more and do more. Um, um, you know, usually when you do that it'll lead you to good things. It's definitely not a science, you know, but I think the more the more that you have in terms of, you know, the ability to read and the ability to work, you know, usually that'll lead to good results. You worked with John for a long time in Texas. What did you take away most from your, your time with him? Yeah, JD I mean JD's a great decision maker, you know, I think he you know i think ultimately he's really able to process a lot of information which you have to do in this job there's a lot of people that are giving you information there's a lot that's out there from you know that that you know when, when you go into making a trade or free agent signing and i think he, he did a really good job of you know, having a feel for, you know, who to listen to, when to listen to, had a feel for, you know, a moment in time, what was the right direction for the organization in a lot of, in a lot of cases, whether a player's value was, you know, stock up or stock down. Um, and he just, he's just always had his own really good natural knack and feel for that. And I think, uh, you know, more often than not, he's he's usually in the right. And, uh, you know, I think he's done a great job leading that organization. Your first winter as the Padres GM, you made quite a splash. Traded away 15 players, received 11 others uh,
0: during a 36-hour stretch in that December. Uh, among the players you received, Matt Kemp, Will Myers, Justin Upton. You signed James Shields before spring training. Traded for Craig Kimbrell. Was there a sense that you were... Going to be able to contend right away in 2015.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what we were trying to do in 15, we had we had a group of pitchers, you know, and I think we felt like we had a moment in time with the pitching staff, you know, for for a one or two year period, that we wanted to take advantage of the group that was there, and quite frankly, when we looked at it, we 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 looked at different paths and different avenues of what to do, you know, we felt like from a value standpoint, potentially moving those pitchers, we weren't gonna, you know, we weren't gonna get what you know what, what we felt like we needed in terms of moving them, so we went the other direction and talked about, you know, what if we added around those pitchers and, you know, and move some players, you know, some 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 prospects. Some guys are gonna end up I'm sure coming back to be good players, end up being more fringy guys, but I think we felt it was twofold. One, like, you know, a chance to go to look out and contend over the course of more of like a midterm type, you know, you know, and type look and a one year two year period. And we knew I think quite frankly, even if we had you know, talked about winning, potentially we could turn those players back around and have value. And I think overall, you know, when I took the job, it really goes down to can you can you have, you know, enough depth, enough quality players, enough, you know, length in your system to to look out and have a Four, five, six, seven, eight-year run. We talk about waves of players that are coming. There's a lot of different ways to get there, you know. And now, as, as you go into year three, you know, we feel like we have one of the four stronger farm systems in the game of baseball. We feel like we're set up to have success down the road. Probably didn't do it in a traditional sense of, you know, I think what, what you know what, what, what some clubs have done the last few years in terms of how to get there. Um, but part of that was, you know, take a shot with some of those players in the 15 season, see if we can win, excite, you know, excite the fan base a little bit. Um, you know, and if it didn't work out, you could always go down a different path. And I think, you know, that's what we saw with some of the other deals we since made after that with the Shields trade, the Kimball trade, etc. How do you feel about the overall state of the farm system? And is there one guy who people may not have heard
0: about, maybe not have gotten as much press as some of these others, who people should keep an eye on?
2: Yeah, I, I think, you know, again, like I think, um, you know, from our standpoint, you, you know, I, I think we've, our scouts have done a really good job of, you know, for, whether it's through a lot of different vehicles, whether it's through trades, whether it's through the international, you know, signings, uh, you okay. know, the amateur draft. I think I'm giving our player development staff, you know, a lot of talented players. I think the one thing we feel strong about is we have have quality depth, we have numbers, you know. So, you know, again, like, I don't like to get into, hey, there's, you know, anointing one guy and saying it's gonna be this one guy. I think from, from our standpoint, you know, just knowing from experience you know and you know dating back to the texas days you know at that point in time we signed a lot of players there that we felt like were interesting had tools had skill sets that we thought would translate and you didn't really know whether it was going to be Oduble Herrera or Rugnet Odor or Jerickson Profar or Martin Perez or which guy was going to break through and you know become you know exactly what level of Bigley or Nomar Mazzara you kind of have a sense you know but it was like there were enough quality players there at the time that we felt like all right we're going to have a lot of options and give your general manager a lot of options. I think that's what our scouting department has done for, you know, for, for us here in the last year or so is the build up. We're, we look at it and you go on the backfields and you see those guys play. And we've got, you know, we've got a lot of shortstop depth. We've got a lot of, you know, athletic outfielders. We've got some big bats. We've got a lot of power arms. Uh, we're starting to get some left-handed pitching. And I think when you look around, you know, you give your general manager or organization options, you know, and, and uh, I think that's always, that's always a good feeling when you're sitting in this chair, for sure. That was Padres
0: GM A.J. Preller. We now turn to our conversation with Rockies GM, Jeff Breidich. So Jeff, you caught and played outfield at Harvard, uh, where you were a captain as a senior. How did your playing experience in college help you as you moved into a front office role? (laughs) Uh, The ability to
3: understand uh, struggle (laughs) and disappointment and having to persevere, Um, being a a very average college player. you know and and um, and having to um, do that at the same time it, it, trying to achieve academically at a very uh, at a very challenging institution um, you know there were a lot of life lessons in there uh, you know a lot of good things too though I, we back then we, we had a very good program and we, we were accustomed to winning a lot and uh, you know whether it was winning the league and, and going on and playing, in the NCAA's and and, and actually, or going and and beating you know bigger programs that had kind of become part of um, who we were at that time period, and um, and being able to see that and experience that um, was just important for me. Um, how it translates to the to the front office, I think a couple of different ways. It it you know it's funny when we really think about necessarily front office baseball front office back then I mean, the dream was to play right so um, but as I look back at it now um, you know the the things some of the things that I learned about just purely about the game um, and especially about pitching um, and some of the intricacies of, of that uh, because I, I came from the Midwest I mean we played a lot of baseball but we didn't play certainly as much baseball as the guys on the West Coast, the guys down in Texas, the guys down in Florida. So there were a lot of things that I, that I had to learn, in, and I did that in college. And, and I, I hope that you know, those things stuck with me in, in terms of what is important to, uh,
0: to create winning baseball. Yeah, there were probably some months in Wisconsin where baseball wasn't really possible. <laughs> I grew up in New York, we had yeah, the same thing. Pretty cold. Uh, you uh, you characterized yourself as an average college player. Yeah. You said the dream for all of you is to play. Did you did you think there was a chance that you'd be able to pursue a professional career?
3: Yeah, by the time I got to my senior year, I mean, I think that the writing on the wall was pretty clear. Um, you know, at, at, by the very end of it, it was, you know, flashing neon lights, Crystal right? Clear. Crystal <laughs> clear. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, you have that, you know, you, you grow up having that dream, if you if you truly love the game, I think the way that we do in this industry, you, you know, I think it's natural and it's probably, it's almost universal that, that you, you grow up thinking, yeah, you know, what, why not? Why wouldn't I want to continue this and do this as long as I could possibly do it? Um, I think the realist in me, you know, came to the forefront certainly by senior year and probably in the back of my mind even before that, knowing seeing other people get the attention, um, of scouts or just play better than me, you know, just some self-evaluation skills. Um, and so, um, you know, and that's okay. I mean, it was, it was tough at the time, but, you know, just like anybody else, you pick yourself up and you move on and, and honestly going to and, and experiencing an institution like, you know, like Harvard, it, it, it gives you some perspective. Um, if you're not in awe at some point of the people around you, Uh, you're probably not paying much attention right so um, you know it uh, but at that time it uh, you know kind of at you know at that senior year uh, sometime in there it was okay so what what's next here and how can is there a way to make baseball a part of what's next
0: speaking of that several gm's that i've spoken to started other careers after college and then decided to jump into baseball did you know right away that you wanted to find a career in baseball
3: not really. Um, I had, uh, you know, teaching, coaching, part of my family, large part of my family. My father um, is a career, you know, high school teacher and a football and baseball coach, um, 45 plus years at doing it. Uh, my brother now in uh, in Chicago at Loyola Academy is a uh, is a teacher and a coach, um, head of the baseball program there. So um, that was kind of. A possibility for me, or, or so I thought, and um, and through a, a couple conversations, um, kind of organic, not necessarily, you know, thought out or planned out, it was, okay, well, if if I, I feel good about having that, I could go back to Wisconsin, I could do the, the teaching and the coaching thing, but what, what else, if, if in the game, and, um, you know, it was literally just sending out Um, resumes and trying to make connections and I got lucky to be honest with you. I think I was fortunate to get uh, an interview for an internship in the commissioner's office and I was lucky to be offered that job. I don't think I did anything overtly special or um, you know off the wall or memorable. I, I think you know I just I just got lucky and I I, did a, I think I did a good job in the interview, and I think I got lucky because there were other people that they were interviewing, too. And so there, there's that element of timing and luck involved in, in all these things. You worked in the commissioner's
0: office for three years? Four. Four years? Yeah. Did you think at any point during that time that you might just have a career working for Major League Baseball in the commissioner's office? There are, there are people there who are lifers.
3: Absolutely there are. Um, and four years there, you get a pretty good, if you're paying attention, you get a, a pretty good understanding of what that means, right? Life in the commissioner's office um, and kind of the landscape there. Now, granted, it's changed a lot. I mean, I left in 2000 at the end of 2004. It's changed a lot over the last, you know, 12, 13 years there. Uh, it's grown, it's it's expanded, it's um, in, in ways multiplied. Good, uh, new guy at the top. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, new leader. Um, so, it's not the same you know, place that necessarily that it was back then. The, the way that I looked at it after probably three years there, I kind of knew that um, maybe my expectations for myself, my hopes and dreams for myself, if I were going to stay in this industry, probably were not going to be met or be able to be met in the, in the commissioner's office. So I started to brainstorm, and I you know I did okay. I need this. so there was that. Um, what's what's the future? Where do I want to live? You know, planning on that time back then um, about to get engaged and be you know be married to my college um, sweetheart and where did we want to live and where do we want to raise a family that certainly played into it but also um, you know career-wise what's the goal here and, and some of it was um, needing and, and desiring and feeling a, um, a draw towards the competitiveness of baseball which is kind of tamped down in the commissioner's office to a certain degree uh, that you get an unbelievable broad perspective on the industry and you make a lot of contacts and you meet a lot of people and you're potentially dealing with a lot of different things but you don't have that daily ownership and you don't have that daily competitive um, outlet that you do with a club. So I, I felt like I needed that um, if I was going to try to continue in this industry and then I was running a parallel course you know you brought it up you know other guys going elsewhere and then coming into the industry I was you know if I can't stay in this game if it's if an opportunity with a club is not in in the offing for me then you know I was going to go back to school and and get an MBA somewhere Um, and so running
0: that parallel course as well at that time. You move on to the Rockies front office and over the next decade you hold jobs in minor league operations player development among others was as you made your way through that did you have your eye on eventually becoming a big league GM?
3: Uh, at the time, way back when, 04, 05, not, not really. Uh, I don't think I, I don't think I knew enough back then to be honest about the job. Um, uh, I, I, I was very interested in, in seeing it firsthand and, um, and Dan O'Dowd certainly did an incredible job with me, um, as well as with others down the line. I mean, there's a, there's a tree, um, there's a tree there that, that kind of stems from, from Dan and the Rockies, um, over the course of the last decade so he did an incredible job of me in in, in terms of showing me you know the ropes and in over a long period of time but just kind of exposing and um and uh you know letting me let me be involved in that sort of in that process so over time it, it became clear that it was something that i felt like i would i would hope and and you know I could do that. I aspired to do. Um, felt like over time, if I learned some lessons and I and I over time gained some experience, that, that I might be positioned to to be able to do the job. But coming into it initially, it's not like it was a um, you know, it's not like it was the. I just wanted to
0: get more experience and do a good job at whatever I was asked to do at that back at that time. You mentioned Dan. You worked for him for a long time. Mm-hmm. What did you learn most from him?
3: Um, I think, um, well, there's a lot of, (laughs) there's a, I mean, we spent a long time together, so there was a lot of things. Um, if you ask me one, the one thing, um, I think the, the scope of the job, the responsibility that you feel to the, the organization at large, you know, it's, uh, um, it's, it's not easy, you know, it's a very, um, the, the scope is large and. Uh, and it's a it's a people game, and there's a lot of people involved, and um, and the more you know, the more intimate connections you can develop with those people over time, or try to maintain over time. Um, it's uh, it's it can be key to how well your organization does, and. Um, you know, the other th- I think the other thing is Dan always was pushing the envelope. Um, he was pushing the envelope and, and trying to, you know, make sure that people weren't kind of sitting on their laurels or, um, you know, comfortable or ready. He always wanted to kind of push you into a, a zone of uncomfortable, um, uh, you know, uncomfortableness, for lack of a better word. And, and, and that was to grow. You know, it was to grow the organization. It was to grow you as an individual. You um, and I think he he did that well. did you always envision he
0: would become a big t v star someday
3: <laughs> I can't say that I did but you know i don't I can't claim I have an eye for t v
0: talent so. <laughs> baseball talent maybe t v talent not so much uh, I've noticed teams are loaded with Ivy leaguers in their front offices these days, aside from the obvious education that you all received, which we know is excellent. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a a reason that 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 trend is taking place?
3: I don't know I, you know the way i honestly, the way I look at that you know. college was something i did for four years a long time ago right and um there are a lot of great non-ivy league executives just not just in baseball across other sports across other industries that are very successful what they do there are a lot of ivy league executives that are very good there are a lot of ivy league executives that you know or executives with Ivy League educations that, that that don't do a very good job. It I, I don't you know, it's not like and I it's tough for me to speak for the other guys that went to Ivy League schools, but I don't show up every day saying, Okay, I'm a I'm a Harvard educated executive. It's it's something I did a while ago. Did it did it challenge me at that time of my life to, you know, in ways that I had never even come close to being challenged before? Absolutely. Did I as I said earlier was I in awe of the people around me at times because of their abilities and their skills and their intelligence level? And did those people push me? Absolutely. Um, did I grow up a lot because of coming from Milwaukee to Boston? You know, somewhat sheltered eighteen-year-old kid going to um, a big city and living there and and experiencing you know some of the things that the East Coast has to offer. Uh, yeah. So the, there was a lot of growth there over those four years and. And at a place like that, is it special growth? Potentially. Um, but you know, that was a long time ago. And so there's, there's a lot of time between then and now to either continue on that path and, and try to make good on that and be as good as you can possibly be, and there's a lot of time to screw it up. Um, so uh, I, I'd like to say that um, you know I think there's a lot of truth to, to an Ivy League school being on a resume, giving you potential looks. And getting a foot in the door, um, but I think after that, it's it's all on the individual, and you got to
0: own that. What are the challenges of building a team that plays a course field?
3: A lot, most of them are similar to any challenge at any place. Um, for us, it's uh, you know, as we've talked a lot about before. It's uh, the versatility, positional versatility with our position players. It's depth, depth of players on your roster, depth off the roster, guys that are developing and, and waiting kind of waiting in the wings and can take the ball and um, to use a football term take the ball and run with it when they're given the opportunity um, you know pitching we you know we've we've made a commitment to kind of flood our our process with pitching and try to do so in, in as many different ways as possible um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that that we're interested in taking all comers it's it's a little bit more specific and and uh intentional than that but um you know increasing and and maximizing our athleticism in addition to that as much as we can knowing that pitching and defense ultimately in my opinion humble opinion lead to championships um or direct you towards championships so um you know uh, all those things um not so unique in other places but um or or in comparison to other places but uh for us, it's, uh, you know, that the some of the smaller things about playing at altitude that are part of our reality uh, come into play more often than they would at other places. So rest and recovery, um, you know, the grind of, of a full season, uh, six-month, hopefully seven-month season, doing, you know, doing that there, it can, you know, it, it forces us to at times make different decisions maybe or think about things, consider things that other organizations don't have to. And that's okay i mean that's just part of who we are um but we have to all those other things that are just talked about you know we got to make sure that those are in in good shape and in good order so that we can adjust on the fly or that we can address some of the you know fatigue or um you know some of the other issues that come up at times from from playing in altitude I
0: mean, every team has its own challenges in some Absolutely. aspect or another you think Absolutely. about the teams in new york I have to consider how a player might handle the media pressure or, right. or that kind of thing. So it's, Playing, it's just you a know, matter of hitters, different...
3: yeah, hitters for for ages, right? Hitters hitting in you know Seattle or San Francisco right. or San Diego and versus huge, New York or Baltimore, huge right. ballparks, you know, where those those ballparks that tend to favor pitchers. Um, you know, hitters got the same complaints at times there that pitchers do with us in Denver. right? It is, you know, and so. Let's yeah, just look at what you said. Every team's kind of got its unique little things that it's got to it's address and it's got to tackle and it's got to become experts at.
0: Troy Tulewitzki was the face of this franchise for a very long time. How difficult was the decision to trade him?
3: Uh, it, was, it was a difficult decision at the time, um, as it should be, I think. You know when you're, when you're talking about a player of his caliber, um, somebody that had been drafted um, by the organization, and, our, you know, Billy Schmidt and our, our guys did a great job in terms of knowing who he was as a player and uh, and saying, yeah, this is the guy that that uh, is the right pick, you know, for us as, a, as our next shortstop. And, um, you know, didn't spend a very long time in the minors and hit the big leagues and was ready for it. And, you know, the rest is history, right? So, um, you know, at, thinking back on that now, it's been a couple years. um With the emergence of Trevor Story, with, you know, some of the the ways and things that we've been focused on um, trying to improve ourselves, I I do feel like it was a necessary trade for the organization with where we were at at the time and what our needs were. Um, And being willing to bet on somebody, having known Trevor Story for really his entire career with us at that point as a minor leaguer, um, betting on him. being, you know, the kind of the heir apparent and being ready to kind of tackle that. Now we didn't know that he was gonna do what he did last year right. in the fashion that he did it, but having confidence that um, that we had a young man who was ready to, to take that next step in his career and become um, become the the, the the shortstop for us, uh, the everyday guy, and, and take on that responsibility and be ready for that responsibility. Um, that helped in terms of um, um, making a tough decision like the two.
0: Young, controllable talent is the most valuable thing in baseball uh, in terms of payroll, in terms of just everyday lineup. How rewarding has it been to see players you've developed here, guys like Charlie Blackman, Trevor Story, Dave Dahl, form an important core of this team's future?
3: Um, in terms of who we are as an organization, it's, uh, I think it is um, vitally important for us. Uh, it's not always a given that guys uh, like each other, and fall in love with each other as teammates um, and as friends. There's a lot of that with with this core right now, I think. And um, and there's been a lot of work put in. I and mean, that just hasn't happened by um, by surprise or by coincidence. I mean, that, that there's a lot of time spent around each other. There's you know whether it's in the winter time here at Salt River, um, and and guys choosing to care about each other and choosing to be around each other a lot and push each other, uh, especially in the wintertime, not just during the season. So, um, that is part of, you know, we we do believe here that that, that's going to help take us to where we want to go. That's going to be part of the equation, Um, you know. And and I think we guys, whether it's players, whether it's people in the front office um, or other parts of the organization, we have one chance – we have one chance in this life and this baseball life. Um, people rarely get two chances. You got one shot to make it good, make it right. And in doing it with people that you care about and people that you, that you like and respect, um, you know, it's, it makes it, makes it sweeter. So um, why not work hard at, at making that part of our reality?
0: We hope you enjoyed our latest throwback episode of executive access. Coming up in future weeks, we'll be back with all new episodes, more than a dozen of them, including sit-downs with Philly's Assistant GM Ned Rice, Pirates President Travis Williams, and more. You can search for executive access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. Be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Stay safe, everybody.